This is the In Self-Defense Podcast with Don West and Sean Vincent, exploring high-profile self-defense cases and identifying the lessons learned for concealed carriers. Hey everybody, it's Sean Vincent. Thanks for joining us today. I'll be uh, talking today, as always, with Don West. He's National Trial Counsel for CCW Safe and a veteran criminal defense attorney. And our friend Steve Moses, who's a CCW Safe contributor and a well-regarded firearms instructor. Steve, not long ago, introduced us to a colleague of his, Tatiana Whitlock. Tatiana's also a firearms instructor. And she comes to the study and the teaching of self-defense from a unique perspective. She is going to tell us about the self-defense lifestyle that I thought was very interesting because I'm personally not a traditional, I don't traditionally identify with the gun culture. I'm concerned with self-defense. I've come to be interested in self-defense from the legal perspective in defending defenders who find themselves in court. And so her approach to considering yourself a the designated first responder for your home when you're responsible for protecting your family, I find very interesting. And uh, somewhere in the course of this conversation today, we're going to have a good conversation about why every gun owner and concealed carrier should be uh, punched in the face at least once to know what it's like. Uh, but I'm going to let Steve Moses introduce Tatiana Whitlock, and I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Well, I actually came across Tatiana, I think, five to six years ago at a uh, tactical conference, and uh, she was one of the presenters. And uh, anytime Tom Givens invites a, uh, a presenter to join the fold. I'm always uh, interested because in every instance, he's always thoroughly uh, vetted that presenter. And then I've always discovered they were, they were exceptional presenters and they brought a lot to the table. Uh, over the years, I've uh, followed the blocks. I've participated in one that she's taught there at the tactical conference. I was uh, very much impressed by her ability and her knowledge in multiple disciplines, uh, farms related and tactics related, and just going about your life in a manner that probably allows you to operate more safely than you would have normally. So uh, I was very much aware that she's been very active. She's a high profile uh, instructor. Uh, she uh, has a, a base of uh, followers. Uh, I think a good percentage of them are men and so when we were talking about who could be good podcast guests, uh, if you'll recall, she was the very first one sure was. that I uh, recommended. So I'm really glad that she's joining us today. So Tatiana, welcome. What, what would you like our members to know about you that Steve maybe didn't mention? Well, thank you very much for that introduction, Steve. It's very gracious of you. And yes, to be invited to be part of the Range Master Presenters Group is, is an incredible honor, Tom. is such a resource that we have. And likewise, that was the first time I was introduced to you as well. So it's very nice to swim in the same pools together as far as information sharing goes and participate in the show. I guess the important things for listeners to know about me is I'm more like them than they probably would guess. 
Many people coming to the firearms community right now are new gun owners. They didn't grow up guns, put air quotes around grow up guns, and neither did I. Uh, my firearms experience really began eight and a half years ago when I took my first class. And my first class was an NRA Women on Target clinic. I came from a, I shot a a shotgun with my father and brothers on the gentleman, the annual gentleman's duck and partridge hunts that we would go on when I was a small child. Um, but we didn't have firearms as a regular part of our family culture. So when I came to firearms as an adult, I looked for a resource. The NRA was that resource available to me in my area, and I took that group class. And it was phenomenal. I had never handled a handgun before that first class, and it changed everything about my perception of firearms and what I thought the gun culture was all about. It shattered every stereotype I came with. Those preconceived notions was completely demolished in the best possible way. And that started a trajectory of learning for me that took me out of my prior career in industry of plastics injection molding and the corporate uh, industrial cultures and brought me all over the country pursuing answers to questions about how the firearm was going to relate to my family and my life. So as a student of martial arts who grew up training and fighting and doing all those awesome things that we hope children have an opportunity to do to learn uh, the life skills and the disciplines of martial arts, as an adult coming to firearms and as a then single mother with two small babies, how was I going to defend my little tiny family? Because it really was all on my shoulders. So looking at my perspective of guns from, this is an incredible tool. I love the gun culture. I love the gun community. These people are amazing and welcoming and nurturing. That fun portion of life, how did that intersect with where the rubber meets the road when I'm home alone with my kids? So the idea of being the designated household first responder was very visceral and very real to me very quickly, living in the woods with my little kids in rural Maine. And that led me to pursue training from individuals all over the country that had answers to the questions that I was asking. How do I live this life safely? I'm not a ninja. I am not a Navy SEAL. I am not law enforcement and I am not military. I'm a five foot two tiny little lady with two little kids and now a couple years later, fast forward, not only do I have my children who I'm responsible for, but my older parents now live with me too. Now I'm in charge of the household, multi-generational household. How do I solve all of those problems? So that journey led me all over the country. I had some incredible opportunities to train with some and learn from some outstanding educators. And just like Steve, and I'm sure you would agree that that learning, that passion for seeking out new information just never slows down. And for the folks that are listening who are asking many of these questions too, how should I be safe in my house if there's a home invasion? How do I make sure I don't make a bad situation worse simply because I don't know what to do with this object, the firearm that's in my life when I really am called upon to use it? it these are solvable problems. And finding solutions to those problems and then delivering them back to a student body, my peers, my friends, my family, in a way that allows them to have more opportunities to stay safe, to make good decisions, 
and to keep themselves and their families safe. That has been my mission as far as a presenter and an educator since I've, you know, I don't think you ever shift gears from being the student to be the teacher. You're simply delivering back the message of what you've learned as best you can. So that's kind of the, the story in a nutshell for how I went from zero to here in eight and a half years. There's something you said there about being the, uh, I might get it wrong, but being the designated first responder for your home. And mm -hmm. what that made me think about is the idea of once you've made the choice uh, to own a firearm, which is and should be uh, parallel with the choice that you've committed to being willing to use deadly force to protect yourself and your family, you've now you're not just a gun owner. You've now assumed a role that has a lot of responsibility associated with it. Absolutely. Your family, your responsibility, and it is a very big one. It's not an insurmountable task by any measure, but it is definitely something that's going to take a level of commitment, dedication, and it's not a pursuit that ever has a, a formal conclusion. You're never really done with this experience of learning and making sure you are prepared. It's not a one-and-done class or a one-and-done certificate. This is a lifetime pursuit. But the good news is, is that it's not all doom and gloom. These training programs are fun, they're engaging, they're thought-provoking, and there's just as many laughs as there are tough conversations and harsh realities to face. Sure. You, uh, last time we spoke, you uh, told me a term that you use called lifestyle logistics. Mm -hmm. What is that and how does that pertain to responsible gun owners? Well, it's from my perspective, it's been an interesting pursuit to join the training community because it seems that you are either designated as a competition shooter, a tactical shooter, a law enforcement or military individual. And I'm really none of those things. I'm a, a, a mom. I have a degree in fine art from Rhode Island School of Design. And I've come to this as a professional and a professional student. So how do I coin what I am able to offer? And what I offer, or my genre, as far as firearms are concerned, are the lifestyle logistics of what it means to apply this object to problems you may need to solve in your daily life. And that is concealed carry, or that is home defense. And so what what are the key components to that? I'm responding to that too, because uh, I think a number of folks who purchase a gun and have it there with the idea of using it for home defense, don't maybe have had a taste of different aspects of the culture, don't know where they fit, but they but just by the nature that they're concerned with self defense, home defense, they're they're in the, the club, right? So that's when right. you when you approach well, welcome when, to the majority students, of America. <laughs> right, yeah, and I know I think that's it. And I think a lot of the, the CCW safe members are folks who uh you, you know there's been a lot of uh, I saw you quoted in an article in Maine, just that there's been a lot of new gun sales to people who've perhaps not owned before. So when somebody like that comes to one of your training courses, what are what are some of the first things that you reinforce? You, you told me that there's often a lot of uh, myth busting that goes on with new gun owners. An immense amount of myth busting. And it's a very honest place to begin that journey. 
I mean, if you've spent your entire life not having firearms as a tangible part of your day, meaning there isn't one in the sock drawer uh, that your dad might have kept in a sock drawer, or there isn't a shotgun by the front door like grandpa used to keep, you don't live that lifestyle. So what you know of firearms is what we've learned through a lifetime of assimilating primetime TV, Hollywood, even cartoons and children's programming based on what generation you're in. That's our assumed knowledge about firearms, and that's a very dangerous place to be because there, no, there are no real consequences to actions in the movies or on television, and those programming, that those shows and the programming, does not follow the letter of the law. It follows dramatic climax and storytelling. And so the problem right. with that is we have a lot of assumptions, and those assumptions are very dangerous things, right down to trigger finger discipline and muzzle control, all the way up to implementation of those tools for deadly force. There's a, a broad spectrum of things that people don't know. And, and the one that we hear a lot right now, again, we've got over 6 million new, new firearms purchases since the onset of COVID. Um, that doesn't even account for the escalation of the activities that happened across the country during quarantine and post or as we are currently sort of post-quarantining-esque in certain parts of the country. Uh, but people were right. purchasing firearms for home defense. The intent was that if I needed a tool right now to protect myself and my family, I need this object. So there's a rush to have purchased the object. And then they bring this object home, and it feels like they've just brought a, a nuclear device into their living room that could detonate at any time. The magnitude of what they've mm. brought home is enormous. And that starts to ask a million questions, and I find these individuals are flooding into classes, not just mine, but into classes across the country. How do I make sure I'm safe with this thing? And if someone were to bust down the front door, how do I make sure I don't make a bad situation worse by doing something unsafe with the gun? So that is a huge, huge problem for that individual, but they come to the table with a very honest set of, I realize now how much I don't know about what I need to know. And when we begin the conversations, you know, the, the big ones that you we find ourselves facing and answering, there's the skills development with the tool itself, but then there's the application concerns. And those application concerns have real legal consequences. You know, Castle Doctrine being uh, the low-hanging fruit one for most folks, meaning primetime TV in Hollywood has taught a lot of individuals that, well, if you engage with someone on the front porch, as long as you drag them inside, you know, you're okay. And we know that that couldn't be farther from the truth. But that is an assumed something that people, assumed concept that's something people really sink their teeth into and think that's really how it's supposed to be. And then they find themselves, of course, in a great amount of jeopardy. Brandishing with concealment is another major big concern. Yeah, what, what, Don, what do we, what do we call that, Don, when you, when you drag uh, a body from the yard into your house after a homicide? Oh, I'd say that's probably 25 to life, mm -hmm. actually. <laughs> <laughs> right? yeah. tampering with uh, uh evidence at a crime scene yeah it's, that, yeah it's funny you talked about the hollywood and go ahead don no exactly right uh what a foolish mistake one would make otherwise might be a legitimate self-defense uh, scenario and people think they have to somehow manipulate the scene to make it better to make themselves more believable and uh and do very foolish things i know we laugh about it because it seems so outrageous but you can imagine uh, we've all heard people say that, 
and I have to think there's been a few of them that actually meant it, that that was part of their plan for home defense. So Yeah, but it only sounds outrageous to us because we've been covering this stuff for so long. And Steve, I know not long ago you were telling me, your favorite analogy is the, uh, the cover to, to Lethal Weapon back in the old days where they, they got their fingers on the triggers. Oh, exactly. I noticed Tatiana on your website, uh, unless the the photo is of the gun being actually fired, everyone's got their finger in a in a ready position. Absolutely. They've the got trigger. the finger, uh, you know, in almost the, the movies, posters, uh, you always see the hero. Uh, he's got his finger on the trigger. And, of course, that is just a complete violation of one of the four primary firearm safety rules uh in which uh, that you know that rule is don't put your never let your finger touch the trigger until your gun and sights are aligned on the target and you are prepar- you are preparing to take the shot and don have you ever watched as a as a lawyer a criminal defense lawyer in particular uh, like an action movie or something and and just counted the felonies that happened <laughs> that <laughs> never get charged yeah. Uh, yeah, it's remarkable the way that Hollywood portrays that. And of course, unfortunately, that's where many people start their their perspective when it comes to uh, many life issues and uh, regrettably many that now involve firearms. I can't tell you how many cases that I've actually dealt with where someone decided to charge their handgun while being confronted by uh, their attacker or while trying to sort out whether their attacker really fully intended to uh, you know to attack them and I've often wondered how of course at that point the gun was empty they knew it the other person didn't and by virtue of doing the things that they see on TV they have just communicated their readiness and willingness to shoot the person in front of them and it can only get worse from that point, I think. That leads us to the next very logical myth to bust, which is brandishing. And we see that in the movies and TV all the time. Well, if I simply expose to the person that is scaring me or making me uncomfortable that I have a gun and brandish or reveal that gun, then that individual will back down because I'm not an easy target. That is one that I have answered and had to address in every concealed carry program that we have run for years. And that is a major, major concern. And I, as we've spoken uh, in the past, something that you see a lot of the, the misconceptions and issues with people misunderstanding the ramifications of brandishing. I'm glad you brought that up, Tatiana, because we have sort of like the official legal line on how that should go and we understand tactically from a responsible gun handling perspective how that should go uh and and then we find there's this little bit of gray area um where we've actually seen examples of cases i'm gonna i'm thinking about the uh the laundromat case fellas that we looked at with um i think her name was uh mccloskey and she was attacked physically inside the laundromat. She went out. She got her gun. She got on the phone with 911. She had it in this low ready position. And this woman came out and was coming at her pretty quickly, pretty aggressively. She raises the gun at her that was with, I assume, a voice command. And that woman turned around 
and walked away and there were no charges filed and that was a circumstance where the defensive display de-escalated the situation and resolved things but on the contrast we talked about how they could have put her in a position where she would have potentially ended up shooting an unarmed person which would uh, at that point she probably would have not been justified um don you thought you might have a question for Tatiana on this, and, and you might say it more clearly than I just did, since I didn't actually ask a question. You know, I, I know, Tatiana, that you have many other tools in your belt other than just drawing and pointing a gun. And I'd like you to talk a little about that and what other options you might have when faced with a uh, potential threat, an attacker of some sort, before you actually decide that it's time uh, to display the weapon, and maybe how you teach your students uh, about that issue, uh, whether they have those skills or not, and then uh, maybe touch upon a very difficult situation when there's a clear threat, whether it's a life-threatening attack evolving or unfolding is not clear, and when it's time or when it may be justified to make it clear to the attacker that you have the firearm or even show the firearm uh, to avoid the attack from escalating from a clear threat of force to a deadly force threat. I rambled on a bit there. I hope you caught pieces of that anyway. That's a good, that's a good five, that's a good well, five part okay. question. <laughs> but I think that the, the, well, we can round table it. Maybe, Tatiana, maybe let's, let's work at it I like well here. I like the I like the first part of that question, especially which is uh, when you're concerned with self defense and you have a firearm. That's just one yes. part of the toolkit. What what other uh, what else do you have in your toolkit or to to work with in a uncomfortable encounter? The firearm is the ultimate. I hope I never have to but it's where a tool that most people begin this journey with. We backfill that with all of the other verbal skills, situational awareness skills, less lethal tools and the skill sets necessary to utilize those properly, as well as a solid dose of medical, without needing a Harvard medical degree, to round out the individual. Now, this isn't to say that you need to be a UFC cage fighting ninja CrossFit warrior. You can bring to the table who you are and what you have for abilities and skill sets, and we can work with that. But none of this is any use, is of no use to you if you don't first start learning how to pay attention. And we use the term situational awareness ad nauseum to the point where people stop hearing you when you say you need to pay attention. You need to be situationally aware. People give a good solid nod and they dive right back into their cell phones as they walk down the street. So the first thing I like to work or address with people, again, is your lifestyle habits, your patterns of behavior that are making you more of a target for victim selection than you are even aware of. Do you jog with two earbuds in or one or no earbuds at all? Are you 
making yourself hands-free so that you don't have to interface directly with your phone and now it's also the the iWatches or the Apple watches that display the text messages so it's not necessarily a handheld device it's a wrist device that's sucking you into that screen how distracted are you with devices and objects that are keeping you from actually paying attention and perceiving the world around you that is step number one the the biggest and hardest thing to change for most individuals is the break from technology. If you can take yourself out of that object, you'd be amazed if you start recognizing and paying attention to the things that jump out at you. You're just not going to see them if you're not looking for them. So separate yourself from the device is step one and then start learning what to pay attention to. Another big misnomer and mythbuster is the whole listen to your gut. Well, if you've never been in a position where you've been afraid or you've been stalked or hunted by another person, how are you supposed to know what that's supposed to feel like? Your gut doesn't even know yet what that is all about. So that's a dangerous one, a dangerous term to lean on with people because they may or may not even be aware because of normalcy bias of what's going on. Should I be uncomfortable? Is this happening? Is this really dangerous? Or am I overreacting? I'm, I'm probably just overreacting. So teaching people what to look for, patterns of behavior that are abnormal. Can you play the game of one of these things is not like the other in a crowd and start picking out individuals or situations that aren't normal? That's step number two. And that's a that's a game you can play uh, with kids. Uh, you know, can you can you tell me who in here is wearing a red ball cap? And they start looking around for the red ball cap. Can you find it's the I spy game with kids, and it's the I spy game with adults too. And it's not just individuals you're looking for; it's entire situations that you're starting to learn to be aware of. So if you're walking into a room and everyone in the room is dead quiet, that would probably get your attention, right? If you were the loudest thing in that room at the moment walking in, that would feel uncomfortable. So paying attention to uh, the environment, the sounds, the smells, the textures, the objects, the dynamics between people is a big deal because our job as concealed carriers is to go out of our way, be comfortable being inconvenienced to avoid problems at all cost. Our job is to make sure we do our darndest not to find ourselves in a situation we have to manage with deadly force because we weren't paying attention. That is the worst of the worst. So whose fault would it be then if we allowed ourselves to be sucked into our cell phones and then discovered our lives were forever altered because we couldn't wait to take that text? That's a dangerous place to find yourself. So this kind of in, uh, personal awakening, studying your own personal daily habits and routines, breaking away from technology, starting to learn and read your environments. Craig Douglas has a phenomenal program called Muck Managing Unknown Contacts that starts really teaching you the patterns of behavior, the, the personality twicks, twitches and tweaks that bad guys have, the, the strategies they use to get close enough to you to make contact with you, to engage you verbally, to bridge the distance so they can go hands-on with you. That's the type of learning you need to encompass and incorporate and absorb because that will help you twofold. One, deal with the problem without 
deadly force or use of force, period, if necessary, and two, help you identify an issue, an issue, situation, or individual, and remove yourself from it before you even have to make contact with them. That's the ultimate goal. That's a fight you won hands down every time, the one you don't have to engage with. But that's the one most people don't want to the do the work for. The one you don't for. have to, to have. The, the inconvenience of it, or I, I think when you get with, uh, you know, there's a little, with us guys, a little macho, stand your ground mentality where I don't, I shouldn't have to change my behavior because of you. Uh, and over and over again, we've studied cases where if they had just left the situation or made an effort to de-escalate, then there's no ultimate reason to go to the pistol. Absolutely. Hey, Sean, before we get too far away from uh, Don's original question, I'd kind of like to hear uh, Tatiana's yeah. thoughts on that. I, for one, uh, I'm a believer that if you have tools other than a firearm that might help you manage a situation in which a deadly force response is not necessarily uh, justified, such as OC, and having that on your person, knowing how to use it, and being able to, okay, articulate why I needed to use it. Uh, I think that would probably be a good idea. And in regards to uh, the use of a defensive firearm as a, as a, as a tool in, in order to stop the threat before the threat actually got to you, I think there might be a very limited place for that, which is uh, displaying the firearm at that time when a person has taken action that indicates they have the imminent intent, they have the ability, they have the opportunity, they have the skills to seriously injure me or kill me, a lethal force would be uh, warranted, but I have enough time to go to the handgun and issue a command and that in itself perhaps stop that threat. Uh, otherwise, I'm kind of a, uh, an advocate of, you know, not leaving that handgun, uh, not exposing that handgun to where it can be seen. And I'd like to hear Tatiana's thoughts on that. I'm in complete agreement with you. And you mentioned a couple of things that are worth exploring a little bit more. The A lot of problem that I see in, in the fact that we've got a huge, huge increase of gun owners, a surge of people applying for concealed carry permits, is a a personal void in bravado, ego, and being too cool for less lethal tools. And that is a big, big myth-busting misnomer that we, we really need to overcome as a culture. You are not too cool for pepper spray. You are not too cool to walk away from a, a an issue with an individual who's trying to provoke you to violence. You will win that battle because you go home, you don't pay an attorney, and you don't change and alter your family's life because you could potentially go to jail from having made a rash decision because someone provoked you to make an emotional response. So the ultimate goal here is that your quality of life and your family's quality of life does not change because of the tools you have at your disposal. And the firearm is the ultimate, if I don't use this tool, I die. And there is a big escalation process from, you know, visual indicators to verbal to assault and battery and so forth up the pyramid of doom here to the point where if you don't and you can't and you there's no other option but to utilize that firearm to, for your survival, not just because you're scared or uncomfortable or you got an owie or your ego got bruised, 
Um, none of those things warrant utilizing a bullet to solve that problem. So the pepper spray, can't speak highly enough about pepper spray. We need to embrace that as a gun culture in a way that has been uh, kind of poo-pooed. You know, I'm not a pepper spray kind of girl. There's t-shirts about that all over the place. And it makes me cringe because I, you know, if you if you made a, a wrong decision with pepper spray, you can't make a wrong decision with a bullet. So you need to make sure you have the tools available to you to not have to go to the gun and to insulate your decision making if necessary. So pepper spray is a huge component of this and should be a part of everyone's tool toolbox, literally and figuratively. And the other part of that is pepper spray, based on where you live in the country, can come with you into environments and places where the firearm can't go with you legally. You could not carry a firearm into XYZ because your state prohibits it or the law prohibits it altogether, but you may be able to carry certain less lethal tools and medical skill sets and devices with you to make sure you still have your survival tools at your disposal. So you've got to think beyond the gun. The gun is a component of a whole solution, but it is not 100% of that solution. One of the things that you mentioned and that Steve mentioned here too are uh, voice commands. And do you ever get into that more in more detail in your workshops? Yes. And you'd be amazed what people come out with for words. I mean, Hollywood comes out in an incredible way. <laughs> it's kind of mind blowing. People start talking like the last SEALs Team 6 movie that they saw, you know, you know, I got your six. And the language is just phenomenal. Right. And where do we learn this language from from the movies that we've watched? And it blows people's minds. And when we start just having this, all right, what would you say? What would you say to your neighbor who also has a firearm, who has solved the the deadly force proximity, no place to retreat? If I don't shoot, I die solution. Uh, are you just going to stand there with guns in your hands? I mean, there's a communication to the individual as a uh as an initial point of verbal contact with that individual to attempt to de-escalate. And then there's the communication that goes beyond that deadly force encounter. That is, it's almost comical to witness people try to flush out that language and those communication skills. Uh, many times people can't speak beyond the pressing of the trigger. They can't elicit their name. They can't call to, to verbalization the words that would provoke someone to help them call 911 or communicate to a loved one to move where they are to a different or safer place. It, it's a para paralyzing moment we don't practice enough. And there are, there are skills, there's the verbal judo of communicating with the attacker, that is its own skill set, and then there's how do you say the words that mean the things after the scary stuff has resolved itself. And that is what I find a big deficit in in the training community and something that we start that process in the defensive handgun class that I teach and at the take a seat workshop that I offer uh, at TACCON as well. Sure. So, so you, you've heard some funny things, but I think uh, sometimes just stop or don't come any closer are, is a good place to begin. Am I wrong? Absolutely. But you, you'll hear people talk like they'll, they'll elicit uh, cop TV lingo. Stop. Show me your hands. Okay. All right. Or they'll say it so fast it's almost in, Ill, intelligible. You you don't even understand the 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 verbal vomit that's coming out. So short. Uh, the way I explain it is you. It's like sit stay. 
If you can articulate clear, short phrases that communicate what you need in that moment to happen right now, you've got to practice those things and give them a try. You can't say those words in a diminutive manner. You have to be able to communicate them with a level of authority and conviction that communicates to that individual that you're serious. And that's not something that most people can elicit on demand. And if they haven't practiced it, there is verbal paralysis and we, we freeze right there and we don't pass go. Sure, sure I imagine there's your, your body language and your stance is part of how you communicate in those situations. Yes, absolutely. Your command presence, so to speak, is a major part of that nonverbal communication. Uh, why do predators pick the diminutive, distracted, slouched shoulders, eyes down, you know, very introspective individual? Because they are not presenting someone who looks like they would put up a fight. So a tiny, petite, little old lady is more of a target if she's got some shiny jewelry on her than the robust 27-year-old CrossFit guy who's head up, chin up, walking down the street making eye contact or, or paying attention and acknowledging the people around them. Yeah, and I think that, that confidence can be translated you know, by how you hold yourself, and then you combine that with whatever confidence you can infuse in the verbal commands and now that goes back, I think, to what you started at the beginning is this idea of not making ourselves targets. You know, not, mm -hmm. not creating the opportunity for someone to even want to engage with us so that we don't even have to de-escalate down the road. So I got to ask, what what is, and here's the real challenge of a deadly force self-defense is this impossible question you know when do you cross the threshold to where deadly force is appropriate and justified and necessary to save your life people ask us that question and all we can do is go to these cases we've studied where we've got real life circumstances where people have made that choice and sometimes they made good choices and sometimes they didn't so what are so you have to go in with mindset right so what is your approach when it comes to communicating how you know when you've crossed that threshold? Because if you if you hesitate too long, you might you might you know not get a chance to defend yourself. There's no one great answer, as you know. the The context is con constantly changing. Uh, the best way that I can explain it to people is if you find yourself in a situation where the gun has to be used. Either you weren't paying attention or they were that good and that committed to trying to hurt you. So our goal, again, is to do everything humanly possible to not find ourselves in a situation where the gun has to come out. But it is not, uh, it's not going to be 100% of the time where that's possible. Uh, there are individuals who are committed to hurting you. There are individuals who will be committed to, once they have begun a provocative attack, to escalating it. Uh, to see it through to whatever conclusion they have committed to. So the definition of serious bodily injury is something that people really need to have a, a gross understanding of. And the problem with this is that the majority of individuals who I have had in classes, who the hundreds of people have come through concealed carry programs in the past six months, I will ask this question in every class. How many of you in here have taken a punch 
to the head where you saw lightning? And the answer is maybe two or three people in a classroom of 20 will raise their hand. I'll ask the next question. How many of you have been on the receiving end of a knife attack? How many of you have been stabbed? Maybe one police officer who's in the class will, will raise his hand or her hand. Then I ask the question, how many of you have had a firearm pointed at you? Typically, it's a law enforcement officer or a current or former member of our armed forces who then raises their hands. The reality is, is that majority of America and the, the majority of places, I'm not going to say all places, come from a relatively safe and nonviolent past in history. And they do not know what it feels like to be uncomfortable from being struck. And the problem with that is the first time an adult takes that kind of receiving end of that kind of strike, there's an assumption that you're going to die because it hurts and it is jolting and alarming and disorienting. And those individuals, based on those types of stimuli, are more prone to say that they would draw the gun, that they would get the gun out and that they'd be compelled to shoot. And that is where we start having to define what is the definition of serious bodily injury. And Steve, you wrote a fantastic article about this in which you, you quoted, uh, have a fantastic quote that says, serious bodily injury means bodily injury that creates a substantial risk of death or that causes death, serious permanent disfigurement or protracted loss or impairment of the function of any bodily member or organ. When you define it like that, uh, we start changing our concepts of what it means to be able to deploy the firearm in what instances and what level of discomfort is necessary. But of course, there's plenty of examples where had the gun been a, a active part of this encounter sooner, it may not have led to that. But that the intent of that moment was so violent and so clear that by prolonging the firearms, uh, introduction to the encounter, it actually made it go on longer and got violent, more violent as a result. So without giving some case studies to have people compare and contrast and play the what would, what would I have done or what should I have done, the premise of this show and, and other similar programs, we really don't have a good frame of reference for explaining this because not everyone comes to the table with an understanding of how uncomfortable, how scary, how terrifying, nightmare-inducing a violent event is going to be. Right. So the first time they're scared to that degree, they think a firearm needs to be the solution, and legally it may not be. Sure, and most of the cases that we've discussed on the podcast where the defender uh, had real problems are cases where the attacker ended up being unarmed and that the threat was physical, but it wasn't necessarily immediately life-threatening. And, you know, something you said there, we, you, you stepped into the reasonable fear part of the conversation, uh, and it's quite possible to have real uh, terrifying fear of a situation. It's just that that fear... The, the, the deadly threat associated with that fear is not there yet. And a lot of this is about uh, managing fear when you're, when you're carrying a firearm, isn't it? You know, Sean, one thing that's interesting to me is in regards to, you know, people getting struck in the head uh, and, you know, in many instances, 
that does not constitute deadly force. That is, as, as Don pointed out you earlier, you know, that if you have a split lip or a black eye, that does not give you justification to then necessarily shoot that other person. Uh, the dichotomy here is, in many of these instances, that's all that occurred, and had the person that was the recipient stepped back, walked away, or disengaged, nothing further would have happened. I mean, a whole lot of these incidents where, you know, a person uh, used deadly force against another was initially something that more or less started as really kind of a form of mutual combat, i.e. a fist fight. And so people get a little bit confused on this, and they think that, okay, if this guy came up and punched me, uh, well, in Texas, uh, you know, a blow to the head can be considered lethal force. I can then use my firearm uh, to defend myself. Well, that's really not necessarily the case. The flip side of that is that there is a culture of people out there that are very good at fighting with their, their hands and their feet. Uh, that is, I think I made reference to some videos uh, in which there was a game called the knockout game when teens would walk up, uh, punch another person. The intent was to render that person unconscious. Uh, they'd film it. They'd walk away laughing. Well, in many of those instances, uh, people who were knocked out hit the ground, their head hit a curb, hit the concrete, and they, and they died. There's also a video out there called One Punch Homicide in which people got into fist fights, struck another person. We're basically talking about more or less a good guy struck another person, and that person died. And that person then, the, the person that struck him, uh, who was like, okay, maybe this was, you know, this guy sang at church. He was a pillar of the community, uh, but he's now in prison. You know, and his children and his family are not going to see them for years. And so there's a real issue there in terms of uh, can I use a firearm to defend myself against someone who is unarmed or not? And it just kind of all comes back, and I know you're probably getting sick of me saying this, is to, you know, those elements of self-defense. And did I have any other opportunities to disengage? And was this indeed a situation when this person met all of those elements? And so, to me, that's something that really stands out. And it actually stands out uh, even considerably more when I look at it from what I would perceive to be a female's perspective, because on average, most females are going to be smaller and less physically powerful than a male uh, of even their own size, much less one that's larger. And so I'd be interested in hearing, you know, Tatiana's thoughts as well as Don's on uh, what they thought about that. So we're discussing disparity of force as it relates to a female being attacked by a male. Unarmed people, unarmed men, and, uh, and, and, and we'll talk about females mm -hmm. right now. So if I am attacked, I, I grew up in martial arts I, from the age of 10 on into my late 20s, early 30s, studied pretty regularly and extensively and have dabbled ever since in those arts in a variety of different styles. It, even with that lifetime of work, whether, I, whether I'm in my full foot physical form right now or not, you, you bring a lifetime of experience to the table with that type of growing up. I am still not going to be able to, at five foot two hundred twenty pounds, exert the same amount of energy as a six foot five three hundred pound man. There's just no, there's no comparative there. If it was a fist fight between me and a six foot five three hundred pound man, there's no contest. I, I can't 
you know, you know, monkey squirrel my way around there to to solve that problem without getting serious potential of getting seriously injured. There's no iron broom sweep to the leg that's going to solve that problem. So how do I level that playing field? What what do I need to do? Well, if I have the opportunity to use pepper spray, one, if I have the opportunity to avoid getting within arm's reach, that's step one. If I do have to get close enough where they are that close that I'm able to use pepper spray, absolutely. And then if it does get to the point where there's a physical escalation where punches are being thrown, just like Steve described, that's that's a that's a mallet coming down on my head. It is not mano e mano. It is not an equal match, right? It is not my my mirror image trying to aggress myself. It is somebody three x my size wielding you know fistfuls of lead in their fists as far as two bullets from the muzzle. So when you're talking about that level of disparity of force, it's similar to someone in a wheelchair being attacked by a young, fit, strapping individual who's, you know, laying waste to them with their fists. So unarmed against unarmed, we have some serious problems in disparity of force, and we see that a lot with women, but we also see this with men, a single male being attacked by a, a group of males. Um, that's something that we're seeing more and more now, just turn on the TV. Um, and that is another example of that disparity of force, unarmed or armed, we, we have a problem here uh, where the, the attack is not equitable. And what is considered reasonable response, a female, petite female to a large male, what is an appropriate response or reasonable use of force changes from, yes, we just had a, a gentlemanly dispute and brawl at the back of the playground after school, those types of exchanges to now we have someone who's really trying to hurt you and their fist or their strike is going potentially to be devastating to you. Uh, not just an owie, but potentially devastating as Steve described. And listening to you talk, Tatiana, I, I get this, we talked about all the tools in your box right from from verbal commands to your posture to less lethal uh things like pepper spray and last time we spoke you talked about thresholds and i, I think you, know, you have thresholds when you deal with home defense whether they're on your yard or through the front door or into the heart of your home but i i picture that when you have somebody who ignores the verbal commands who ignores your physical posture, who ignores if you've gotten to the point where you've got pepper sprayed out and you hit them, each one of those things makes their intent and their ability more clear. And that makes this really difficult, ambiguous decision when it comes down to is lethal force required at this situation easier to make. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. If they've pursued you to that point and you have done checked all the boxes and done all of the things, if they continue to pursue you through that, there's a level of commitment there that if you don't respond appropriately, you, your life could end. And that is yeah, where we start that, having to utilize the firearm. The difficult choice with, with a lot more confidence. Well, as we kind of wrap up tonight's conversation, I was curious... Tatiana, when you have your classes, do you ever get like interesting legal questions that you feel you're perhaps not qualified to answer that that Don can help us out with today? Oh my I'm goodness. I'm curious if you have any. 
I do. And the, the, the tough part is, is that again, it's many people are trying to ask a specific question that is unique to them and their lifestyle and their state. And as someone from the state of Maine that does not live in the state of Texas, uh, in the state of Maine, you, you cannot do certain things that you can potentially do in Texas. So it is a complete hodgepodge of, of legal stuff. And I do not pretend to be a lawyer. And so, yes, I send them your way for all of the right reasons, (laughs) but most of the time it comes down. Hmm. Uh, Sure. Most of the time it comes down to when can I, how should I make sure I use the gun properly? And one of the questions is we, I call it the horror movie scenario. So someone's breaking into your house and the wife wakes up and she reaches over and she's like, honey, honey, someone's downstairs. And you hear breaking glass and the husband's like, I've got this. And he grabs the home defense gun. And in his britches, he tactical britches, he reach it go you know go grabs the gun and then starts sneaking downstairs to go and look to see who's there normally the question i get is isn't that the right thing to do i'm going to be that guy or i'm going to be that gal and that is that's a scary one because should you pursue that problem should you stay where you are and hold your threshold or the bedroom itself or the hallway or the second floor where are you defining those boundaries and do you want to be the person that goes and and hunts down the problem not knowing what it is you're walking into now i know in some states that changes the dynamic based on castle doctrine laws so what would you say to somebody who's who's going to be the hero and want to take that firearm the home defense handgun or shotgun and you know go into the darkness you know with their their tool of choice how does that change their dynamics? Well, I guess my response to that is sort of a, a combination of legal and, and tactical questions. Legally, you're probably okay if you're in your own house and somebody has forcibly broken in. They are an intruder in most jurisdictions. Uh, you have sort of the presumption of correctness in that there's usually a presumption that you are in reasonable fear, that there's an imminent threat, and your use of deadly force against an intruder in your home is lawful. Uh, there's some things you can do to, to sort of ruin that, to uh, rebut the presumption and to make life uh, much more challenging legally than if you are simply confronted by an intruder in your home and you... Uh, use deadly force to protect your home and your family. The, the, the tactical question is more, why on earth would you do that if you and your family are otherwise safe in your spot within your house? Why would you create an opportunity to be vulnerable or to uh, put yourself at greater risk than, than you have at the moment? Uh, I thought Steve wrote an excellent article, and we've talked about it on podcasts, about this notion of retreat to a hard corner uh, within your house if you suspect that there are intruders or, or someone trying to get in that maximizes your position of safety. You'll have the same legal protection typically wherever you are in your house, but some things are simply smarter and safer than others. Uh, maybe you can comment on that, Steve. Uh, Well, I am one of those uh, homeowners uh, who decades ago did go charging out of the bedroom into a darkened uh, living room 
uh, to confront a burglar, and I will have to say I would not recommend. Uh, when it was all over, uh, the police had come and uh, took the uh, suspect uh, away in handcuffs. I sat at my uh, kitchen table. Uh, I was going to drink a glass of orange juice, but I couldn't quite get it down because my hand was shaking. And I go, I cannot believe how stupid I was. And as a result, that caused me to go on the journey that basically led me to being in a position to have this conversation with y'all today, which is I made a big mistake. I decided I would never do that again. And I took just, you know, I've taken an untold number of courses, uh, making sure that I will be uh, adequately prepared to deal with that situation or any conceivable situation should the, the moment arise. So I'm not, I'm not a fan. You know, and so, Don, one of the words that you used to describe that was retreat to a hard corner in your house. And we've had a negative reaction from time to time when we use the word retreat. Tatiana makes me think of sort of the, the reaction that you've seen to the idea of pepper spray from time to time. That somehow uh, there's something less than honorable about uh using something less than lethal or or refusing to put yourself in a situation where you may need to have a deadly encounter i think we decided we wouldn't say uh retreat but like tactically reposition yourself <laughs> uh but does that resonate with you do you, do you find people who are not well trained somehow feel perhaps empowered by the firearm or feel entitled in some way now to go to the problem to solve it rather than find advantages and wait for the problem to come to them. Yes. And that is a very scary and dangerous place to be. That is something that can exacerbate a situation or incite more violence if not taken properly. If you, Again, you don't know what you're walking into. So that's that's the best way that I can get people to grasp that it's not appropriate to just throw yourself into the fire here. You don't know what is going to be on the other side of that wall, how many individuals they are, how armed they are. And you certainly don't want a reactionary response. You also have to consider that, that there was an instance in Maine where a individual who had a father visiting them with Alzheimer's, this father wandered into a neighbor's house and thought was lost, was confused, was afraid, was acting belligerently because he was afraid. And the homeowner fortunately recognized that this individual, who this man was, and responded kindly and lovingly to this individual. However, had that, had that gentleman, that father, gone into another home at a different time of day, then that may not have been met with such care and attention. So you just don't know what you're walking into. Don't put yourself in a situation to get yourself hurt or potentially to get someone else inappropriately hurt. We certainly don't want to be pointing guns at people that don't need to have gun pointed at them. So it's a double-edged conversation there. And yes, the firearm does embolden individuals to act irrationally. It does not exude an invisible force shield of competency simply because it's in your hands. You will not summon your inner John Wick or Jason Bourne simply by drawing it out of the gun safe and pushing it out in front of you towards the area that's making you afraid. 
That is a very, very big misnomer, but I see it quite a bit. A little bit of range time, a little bit of scenario-based training is an incredible eye-opening experience to who you are as an individual in this moment and how prepared or ill-prepared you are to solve that problem. But again, don't look at those training opportunities as a slap on the wrist of how much you don't know. Look at it as an opportunity to fill those gaps. Identify them and fill those skill set gaps. And again, training can be fun, so take advantage of it to make sure that you're prepared properly so that the gun doesn't find itself being deployed inappropriately, changing your life and the life of your loved ones forever. Well said. I can't think of better final words for this podcast, but I do want to ask Steve and Don uh, if you have any other questions that you think Tatiana could answer that would be valuable to our audience. Uh, I tell you what, I would love to have Tatiana join us for another podcast. Uh, there's many topics I could kind of go on and on, uh, but at this time, I think I will just wait until the next time. Well, I, I agree. I would like to continue this conversation. I think we just touched on a number of topics and subtopics that we could uh, explore in great detail to considerable benefit of those. Um, before we go, though, today, I would like Tatiana to speak to her own sort of career trajectory. We know from becoming a student to an instructor that now this the uh, firearms community is a huge part of your personal and professional life, but um, how do you make a living? Are you, uh, what courses do you teach? How can people find you? Do you have a specific focus? Do you look for certain kinds of students and uh, sure. perhaps avoid well, others? Well, it is 100% my, my professional career is currently anchored 100% in the firearms educational community. I am, of course, an NRA certified instructor. I'm also the national director for A Girl and a Gun Women's Shooting League, which is the country's largest women's shooting organization. So that is one of the ways to reach me or to gain access to me and some of the materials that I have to offer is through the programs that that organization offers at over 300 ranges across the country. I'm also the director of training at Howell's Gun Shop in Gray, Maine. So if you're in New England, come up and say hello. And I'm on the Walther Defense Division shooting team. The programs that I teach autonomously under my own brand are the programs that can be found via TatianaWhitlock.com. The 2021 schedule and every annual schedule can be found there for course enrollments from coast to coast, border to border. I, I go to ranges where I am invited. And most of those communities are very mixed communities. I wouldn't say that they're predominantly beginner or predominantly female. The scales have tipped to beginner to intermediate individuals as well as professionals in the firearms industry community and first responder communities that are looking for specific skill set development. And the classes that I offer are really intended to bring context to the work we're doing with the firearm and to introduce shooters as early as possible in their learning experience, the concepts and principles of how you're going to need to bridge the gap from the artificiality of the range to what it would mean in the Walmart parking lot, or what it would mean to have to use this gun in your living room, or if you were surrounded by your loved ones and you're the one stepping forth to protect them. That is the premise of the programs that I offer in the classes that I teach. There's a lot of visualization drills that go on in those programs to bring your mind through certain journeys. 
and then a lot of changing of the psychology in how we introduce different stimuli to get you to be prompted to a response. So that is that is in a nutshell how to find me online, TatianaWhitlock.com, on social media channels, Facebook, Instagram, all of those glorious social media channels. It's simply my name, Tatiana Whitlock. All right, you guys, that's the show for today. Thanks for listening through to the end. Tatiana's agreed to join us again for some future podcast. She's got some specific self-defense cases she'd like us to look at. So until then, be smart, stay safe, take care. <laughs>